Let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 8. You will need to turn me down a little bit, probably. I might get excited in just a little bit here. We know how that goes. Give me some room in the volume to adjust <laughs> as the Spirit leads. Romans chapter 8 is on page 1200 and 1201 if you're using one of our Bibles. And we have been studying through Paul's letter to the Roman church for uh, a number of months now. We're about halfway through. And we're about halfway through this chapter. After today, we'll be ready to begin in verse 12 and work our way through the rest. And that's how we're handling this letter. We're going just verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, giving attention to it and um, sometimes working through the details of a passage. Last week, I did, I finished up in verses 5 through 11, but there was one phrase in here that was nagging at me that I felt the need to give more further attention to and to describe, and I'll get to that in just a few minutes because I think it's important in this particular area not to be kind of vague in our understanding of what he means, but to be very clear in what he's talking about, and I think that will be helpful. Let's go ahead and let's just read these 11 verses. We'll take the time to do it. If we go a little longer this morning, that's okay because we're feeding you, so there should be no complaints. Begin in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what we just sang, right? For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. For anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also Give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Let's just pause now and ask God's blessing on these verses. Father, we comp uh, confess now our dependence upon you for all things, including spiritual comprehension of the verses we're reading. The ability to really comprehend them for ourselves and our lives and 
Lord, so we ask for your spirit to help in that. We pray that he would be powerfully working in everyone here, opening minds and hearts to see wondrous things out of your law and to really sense his presence and be able to apply these words into each and every life. We pray for that, and I pray for his gifting. As I know that preaching is not something that comes to me naturally, but it's a gift that you have given me. And so I confess that now and even ask for evidence of that as I begin to speak and walk through some of these verses and talk about these very important things, things that apart from the Spirit's help would be above my head. So I ask for it now, for your glory and the good of your people in the Great Commission and in the name of Jesus, amen. Now, let me just review for a minute. You'll remember how we broke up those first four verses. It begins with that reminder in verse 1 that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is a reminder because he's already said the same thing, though in a different way, back in chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. It's the same thing as saying there's no condemnation. If someone has been justified, they're not condemned, you see. To be in Christ Jesus is to be believing in Christ Jesus, to be trusting in Christ Jesus. And then he gives these reasons in verses 2 and 3. He elaborates on the gospel here. The first one in verse 2 is that the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That is this. You received the Holy Spirit and this new law or principle of the spirit in you brings new life and frees you from that law of sin and death that held you and condemned you that he talked about in detail in chapter 7. You're free from that now. In addition, in verse 3, he talks about the work of the Son incarnate, our Lord Jesus Christ. How God sent his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. That just means the eternal Son of God who is equal with the Father and the Spirit, who created all things, became flesh, a a human being truly and fully. The difference being that he was without sin. He was like us in every way, in the likeness of sinful flesh. The difference being he was without sin so he could be our substitute on the cross. That God could put him forward and pour out his wrath that's directed to us because of our sin, Our condemnation, he could pour into the Son so that we can say, on that cross, we can sing this, on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. He bore our sins in his body on that tree. He became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. And these gospel truths resulted in verse 4. In order that... This is all done for us and in us, done by the Son for us in His work and by the Spirit for us in us uh, by His work in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk now not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. See, those who are in the flesh, we just read, those who do not have the Spirit can't please God. They can try 
But the problem is their minds are hostile to God. They cannot submit to God. They cannot obey God's law from the heart as the way it's supposed to be directed for God's glory as it's supposed to be done. The best they can hope for is some kind of external obedience, working to try to please God. But we are not in the flesh anymore. We're in the spirit if we have the spirit. And therefore, we can now please God. We can fulfill the righteous law of love for us. And then you'll remember in verses 5 through 11, just summarizing that, we talked about the fact that Paul presents two kinds of human beings, two categories. Remember this? He's talking about those who are of the flesh and those who are of the spirit. No middle ground there, no some kind of in-between. You've got two kinds of people. They're either of the flesh, so they set their minds on the things of the flesh and they walk according to the flesh, or they are of the spirit, meaning they have the spirit in them and they set their minds on the things of the spirit and they walk according to the spirit. And it's so important to know which category you're in because what he makes it very clear is that for those who are of the flesh, they're in hostility to God, and that mind that's set on the flesh is going to end in death. Not just physical, but eternal death. Separation from God, bearing the condemnation of sin forever. But those who have the Spirit, of course, through faith in Christ, they are the ones for whom they have life and peace forever, okay? Not just now, but life eternal and peace with God forever. We've got to make sure the category we're in because it's of eternal consequence. And what Paul has proposed is that the way to be a person of the Spirit is not through the works of the law or trying to be good or trying to get God happy with you by being good. It's by trusting in Jesus Christ. That's what his whole proposal was. Justified by faith alone, in Christ alone. You can turn to him and cry out to him. Paul will make it very clear in Romans chapter 10 that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, if you have not been a part of any of these services, you just got all of those verses in a nutshell in five minutes. And some of you are like, why did it take five Sundays then to say that? Well, <laughs> because we paid a little more detail to each one. And I've noticed in my experience that the nature of the Bible requires meditation. It requires thinking about things more than just one time, but it's like really giving yourself to something. So sometimes you're trying to disciple somebody and they'll say, oh, I know that. But friends, there's a difference between knowing something and that point where the spirit like makes it internally real to you, right? So there is great benefit in taking our time in a book like Romans and going through these verses and settling in these things. I would say if you've been here every week, you should be able to outline this in a similar fashion to what I just did. If you're listening in this. 
This isn't just for a pastor to be able to do, but really for the people of God to be able to do, to be equipped with the Word of God, okay? So, the question I want to answer this week, the thing that really nagged at me and led me to create this sermon that you're about to hear now, is the concept or the phrase that Paul uses in verse 5 that those who live according to the flesh, or most literally those who are according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. I want to focus on this concept of setting our minds on the things of the Spirit and really understand what he's talking about there. Because I do think it can be misinterpreted, misunderstood. I think people that could read that and say, I know what that means to set my mind on the things of the Spirit, but not really have anything concrete. Somebody might ask you, what is it to, what are the things of the Spirit? I mean, what are these things that we set our minds on that remember, if you connect it back up to verse 4, those who set their minds on the things of the Spirit, it actually directs the way they live. I mean, they walk according to the Spirit because they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. They conduct themselves in this world in a certain way because of this new mindset on the things that are of the Spirit. See how important that is? It's so important. That's why in verse 6, Paul explains, well, in verses 6 and 7 and 8, that this mindset of the Spirit on the things of the Spirit is so important, the one ends in death, that is the mindset of the flesh, and the other ends in life and peace. So we need to know what he means when he says the things of the Spirit. Because these are supposed to be the things that we set our minds on that actually direct the way in which we leave. So let's answer that question, okay? What are the things of the Spirit that Christian people set their minds on? And notice this. The Christian faith is a faith of, it's a thinking faith that engages the mind. It's a thinking faith. It's not just a feeling faith. I'm worried that large portions of Christianity believe that Christianity is primarily what I feel. When I show up to a service, I'm going to go to the church that, I, that makes me feel a certain way. Because maybe they play music, and when they play a certain kind of music, I have this feeling and after all, I know that feeling is God. So I'm going to identify that feeling with God. I would say that Christianity involves feeling. And a feeling-less Christianity is not Christianity. But it is not primarily based upon feeling. As a matter of fact, he's saying these things that you set your mind on, that verse 4 direct the way in which you walk or live in this world are not feelings, 
They're things that you're thinking. They're things that are in your mind. That's directing the way you live. Not the pursuit of feeling something. I feel like I should do this, so I'll go ahead and do this. No, I'm arguing that these are things in our minds that we can know and believe and be assured of that actually then direct the way in which we live. That makes sense. So a feeling-based Christianity is a very dangerous Christianity. A feeling-less Christianity is dangerous as well. But a feeling-based Christianity is just as dangerous. We are people who think we have a certain mind, we have a certain way of seeing things, we have thoughts and things that we put into our mind that actually transforms the way we live. So Paul will say later on, in chapter 12 and verse 2, he'll say, don't be conformed to this world, but be being transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, like as you think these things through with your renewed mind, as you're testing it, you'll be able to determine what is the will of God with the things that are in your mind, not just based on what you feel. You don't follow your heart or go with your gut in these things. It's very dangerous. Christianity is a, a thinking-based religion. As a matter of fact, it's one of the things that sets us apart from some of the mystical religions, some of the Eastern uh, religions that would say, the first thing you need to do is sit down and cross your legs in a certain way and Get your posture right, and what we need you to do is clear your mind of all thoughts. Just empty it out. This is going to be the path to how you're going to live. Sad thing to say, that leaks its way into Christian circles. And people actually teaching now, Christians, that you want to hear from God, just sit there and clear your mind and wait to hear some mystical word from God. Friends, those aren't the things of the Spirit. I would say that those kinds of thoughts and those kinds of practices are the playground of the devil with people. As he very clearly has the ability to manipulate feelings and experiences. No, these are very concrete things that we're supposed to have in our minds that direct the way in which we live that will actually, by the way then we live these things out, it will demonstrate whether we are people of Jesus Christ or not, whether we have the Spirit or not. It'll just be the way in which we live, the direction of our lives are going to look like people who are of the Spirit and their minds are on the things of the Spirit. So what are these then if they're not feelings. I would propose this and then I'll prove it to you from the Bible, okay? The things of the Spirit upon which our minds are set that govern our thinking and direct our way of living are the things 
found in the Word of God. If somebody were to say to me, what are the things of the Spirit upon which my mind is set that are to direct the way in which I live and my walk, I would hold up my Bible and I would say, these are the things of the Spirit. These are the things that come from the Spirit. These are the things that are to fill our minds and give us a certain mindset and worldview and life view that actually govern every aspect of our lives. Leaving no aspect of our lives untouched in which we wouldn't walk according to these things that are in our minds, you see. These are the things of the Spirit. Put up on the screen 2 Peter chapter 1. Verses 20 and 21, this is what Peter says. Listen to this now. This is important. This is how we view the Bible. We're, we're going to do a podcast or two on what is a Bible church. And I was like, I don't really know. So we started Googling what a Bible church is or whatever. But at the very least, what is a Bible church? A church that upholds the authority, the inspiration, the inerrancy, the infallibility of the Word of God. So at the very least, if you attend here on a regular basis, they say, what's a Bible church? You say, a Bible church believes that this is the word of God and we build our entire lives around it. And everything that we do as a church is directed from it. Listen to what Peter says about the Bible. We need a proper perspective on the word of God. He says, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Now, prophecy, when the New Testament writers are using this, they're not always talking about telling the future. Sometimes we think about prophecy and we think about it's just telling what's going to happen. That's a part of it. But honest, the nature of prophecy is that it is the words of God. So a prophet would be called as a prophet, a specific prophet, and they would speak forth the words of God. And they may not be telling about something that's going to happen in the future, you know. The, Moses is referred to as a prophet. And David in his Psalms referred to as a prophet. They're telling forth the word of God. Now notice this. No prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. One of the biggest charges people bring, non-Christian people bring against the Bible is this. They'll say, that's a man-made book. That is a book that's just produced by human beings. And maybe they were just trying to make a lot of money. People maybe that don't know the history of the people who wrote it and they were mostly persecuted and killed. That's just a man-made book. Well, friends, what we believe is, yes, men wrote this book. God used different men at different times and different occasions to write this book. But notice the clarification here. Let's put that back up. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That idea of being carried along was, is used in the book of Acts of, as, a, as a ship out on the sea and the wind catches its sails 
and directs it along. And what it means in this context is that as they were writing these things down, they were under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Peter says they were, they were carried along by the Spirit, ensuring now that every word that ended up being spoken, maybe eventually written down or being written down, as Paul's even doing in writing the book of the Romans, under this inspiration of the Spirit, comes right from God himself, right? The Spirit of God was doing this. By the way, that's sometimes when people truly become Christians and they become reading the Bible, they're like, this is a different book than any other book I've ever come in contact with. Non-Christians can study this at the PhD level as just a work of history and fiction with some interesting stories and insights, but not the Word of God. But when the Spirit is in within somebody, they detect this as the words of the Spirit. Because we believe this comes from the Spirit, this, these are the things of the Spirit, and because we believe that, it's what gives us it authority in our lives. The reason the Bible is the authority over us is because it is the Word of God breathed out by His Spirit. It's not just because it's the words of Paul or Moses or Isaiah. It's because these were men that were recognized as those who would receive direct revelation from God, new revelation from God, that God spoke through them, you see. This is why in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, the author says, Long ago and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And connecting that to Second Peter, we could say, through the Holy Spirit, right? He spoke through the Spirit by the prophets. Jesus viewed the Bible this way. Did you know that? If you're a Christian, you should view the Bible this way because Jesus did. In Mark chapter 12, verse 35, Jesus taught in the temple. He said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Jesus said, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, and then he quotes from Psalm 110, something that was written many centuries prior. In the scriptures, David spoke in the Spirit. This wasn't just David talking about something. I'm sure David had many conversations that were not carried along by the Holy Spirit. But this conversation inscripturated for us, says Jesus, comes from the Holy Spirit. These are the things the Spirit said. By the way, true Jews, even in Jesus' day and in the first century, never argued about this. This was not up for debate. They knew that the scriptures came from God and they knew something of inspiration. The, doctor, the Bible comes from the Spirit of God. So these things are the Spirit. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All Scripture is God-breathed, God-spirited through the 
human author. This is why we must treat the Word of God with reverence. You know, the Russians, the Russian church had a tradition, we, and I was taught this when I went over there a few times, and we'd go into a worship service. And you know how in the United States we, we'll take a Bible and sometimes we'll slide it under our chair or put it on the floor? The Russian people had such a high view of the Word of God, and I'm not saying that we can't slide our Bible under the chair and appeal. I'm just saying this was their view of it. It was so special that that was a sin to do that. You would never put your Bible on the floor. These are the very words of God. These are the things of the Spirit that God has given to us. So this means, friends, if these are the things of the Spirit and we set our minds on the things of the Spirit. You remember in Romans chapter 8 and verse 5 that those who are of the Spirit, well, they just set their minds on the things of the Spirit. There's no command there. That's just a statement of fact. How will you detect a person who is really of God and who is really a follower of Christ and really has the Holy Spirit of God? They set their minds on this. These things direct the way in which they live because as their minds are set on it, now they're going to walk according to it. This is why people, Christian people have been called historically the people of the book. And this is why it's a tragedy. When I hear people say things like this, well, we've, we come to your church because I mean, the Bible is barely used where we were before. How can you have a worship service of God and not have his word as the primary content of the entire service? If we are a people of the spirit and we're to have the mind of the spirit and the mindset of the spirit, then certainly doesn't it just stand to reason that when the people of the Spirit gather together, that the primary thing then that you're going to hear and read and recite and pray and sing are things of the Spirit from the Word of God? Would not be, I mean, to me that just stands to reason. We are a people of the Spirit. The things of the Spirit have been revealed to us now in our day in the written Word of God. We do not need any further revelation from God. The things of the Spirit, they're sealed in the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. There's a whole movement out there. And I've mentioned this before. I think I actually taught on this for a while and uh, with, in, involved with Bethel music and some of these other organizations, they have what's called the New Apostolic Reformation going on, meaning there's new apostles now. And they are new prophets now. And they hear, of course, from God. Well, see, friends, if a person comes to me and says, I've got a word from the Lord to you, here it is. Do you know if what they're saying is true? I mean, if what they're saying comes from God, I'm obligated to obey them. 
we're obligated to do what they say because God doesn't waste his breath, nor does he offer suggestions. So when he speaks by his spirit, it comes with authority where the people of God snap to attention and we willingly obey it, you see. These are the things of the spirit. We have enough things in these books of the Bible to set our minds on that frankly we shouldn't even be looking for anything other than this, you see. These are the things of the Spirit. Now I can tell you right now it is a great joy to preach to a church where I think the vast majority of you love the Bible as the Word of God. That's a privilege. I've taught couple places and officiated funerals where I'm teaching the Word of God, and I don't think the people were really keen on what I'm saying. It's a different vibe. I don't know. It's, it's, it's very hard to look at them. I, I've got a little trick where I blur out faces so I can't see the response of the people looking at me because it'll be distracting to me. But this is a church that is understanding these are the things of God. This is the way in which my mind is renewed day by day, week by week, by which I am transformed and not conformed to this world, I'm going to base my entire life, the whole direction of it, the course of it, my mind is going to be set on the things that come to me from God by the Spirit. And friends, if that is you, then let me encourage you with these verses up on the screen. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, or verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, listen now, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. So you're not in the world anymore. You've received the spirit now. That's why you understand these things. That's why you accept them. Furthermore, that's why you rejoice in them and are willing to base your life upon the truth that you find here. Because he says in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 14 to 16, he says, the natural person, that is the person who is of the flesh, well, now that person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. But we have received the mind of Christ, the mind set on the things of the Spirit the mind that accepts the word of God as the authoritative rule over our lives and that governs, friends, the very way in which we walk and live. That's the difference between you and the world. That's why you have friends and family and you share the things of the Spirit with them from the word of God. And what do they do? They say, that's folly. That's foolishness. I don't even get that. I don't understand that. Friends, that's because they don't have the spirit as you do. This is why evangelism becomes proclaiming the gospel of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit and pleading with God to impart life, the spirit of life into the person you're talking to. You can't change them. You can't even get them to comprehend it. You can't get them to see it as anything other than foolishness that anyone would base their whole life on a book over 2,000 years old that has a lot of weird things in it. It's foolishness to them. They need the Holy Spirit of God. That is what we have, friends. 
What is a Bible church? A Bible church is, well, first and foremost, a church that honors the authority of the Word of God, knows that these are the things of the Spirit, and we fill our minds with these things, and God then transforms us and directs our walks. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your Word. Your Word is truth. We confess that here. And I pray again, as we always do, for a working of your spirit in the hearts of people here. Flip the light switch on in hearts and minds and let them see these things of the spirit. And then, God, we know and confess, even though we set our minds on the things of the spirit, there are times when we can act very fleshly and be fleshly minded. And so we pray that this week, the Spirit would help us in our walk with you, enabling us to live by these things. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.